It's Yolanda here, and welcome to the Bauhaus Wife podcast. Wow, it has been a long time since I've recorded a podcast, but I'm so delighted to be back, and this time I'm here with the story of our most recent baby's birth, which was a mystical, dark, intense, wild, expansive, and wonderful experience, really. But before I launch into the birth story of our little Ignatius Shepherd Clark, I want to invite you to join me through the veil. That sounds lovely and mysterious, doesn't it? But what do I mean? Well, Through the Veil is my new program. It's a pregnancy companion in the form of an online course that I've created, but Rather than a strictly educational offering, it's more of a journey that I'm inviting you to take with me as I move through the last several weeks of my recent pregnancy and through the veil into the wilderness of my birth journey as told through a video that I've recorded for each week of my last trimester of pregnancy. A video of me (laughs) talking about how I approach and plan for birth how I involve my family and my kids, and the program kind of follows the emotional trajectory of my experience, Um, and then includes as well my birth experience itself in the form of a, a, I think it's more than an hour-long video of the actual birth. And I really wanted to make something that offered other women a kind of immersion into how I handle pregnancy and birth because something that I've noticed over the years and I've found myself to be true as a mother is that I think we tend to really lead quite fractured and somewhat isolated lives and especially when it comes to making birth choices that fall outside of the so-called norm um, it can often feel really scary and lonely I think to be planning a home birth or a free birth when we're not constantly sort of living in the company of other women who are doing the same or similar. So instead of creating this sort of perfect curated Instagram designed program, it's definitely not that, uh, Through the Veil is very, very raw. It's very vulnerable. It's maybe a little weird. (laughs) It's hopefully quite funny at times Um, and also very heartbreaking um, because it's really what kind of happens to me when I stay pregnant for 43 weeks, which I did uh, during this last pregnancy, and then experience what was a very challenging birth for me as well. And this whole idea is something that's quite close to my heart, um, and I've been thinking about doing something like this for, for quite a long time, you know, over a decade, really. And it's important to me because while I do absolutely love birth so much, I just, I love birth, I love everything about it, and I loved this most recent birth of mine as well, but birth is not always pretty, and it is always a challenge, and I really wanted to share that um you know, the sort of gritty reality of birth, especially for women who might be feeling anxious or scared or, you know, kind of as though they're being flung headlong into this grappling with the unknown, which I think we all are doing no matter how many babies we've had in the context of, of pregnancy and birth. So, so yeah, that's my new project and I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. And the following podcast is actually taken in part from the hour-long video 
of my birth. So what this podcast consists of is part of the narration that I did for the video that's part of this program through the veil as well. So the the following podcast will give you a little bit of a, a sense of what some of the some of the program is about. Um and uh and there's lots of other resources as well. So it kind of gives you a sense of my journey of this pregnancy and then the birth itself and then there's lots of other goodies. So yeah, it's kind of a kind of a unique a unique offering and I'm, I'm also a little bit scared to be honest to release it to the world because it is just so so vulnerable um but I also know that it's going to really speak to those women out there who are planning their free births or home births and who may not have the benefit of having a traditional birth attendant walking with them on their journey or a sister or a wise woman in their life who can mirror what they're going through and you know, say to them, yes, if you're naked and weeping and losing your marbles on the bathroom floor at 43 weeks, as I did, as I do, as I feature <laughs> in this program, then that just means you're beautiful and real and whole and it's going to be okay. It is okay. Everything is fine. <laughs> so yeah, that's Through the Veil. I'm excited about it. I'm a little nervous. I hope everyone loves it. Um, it's wild and wonderful. And if you'd like access to it, if this um, uh, piques your interest, then please visit www.freebirthsociety.com. So this is a collaboration with my dear, dear friend, Emily. And I'm so grateful to her as well. And yeah, I should just also mention that I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching for women who are approaching birth and who are looking for input as far as their planning goes, if they're planning on having a free birth or a home birth, or, you know, if they just want to optimize a hospital birth experience even, as well as um, I offer also coaching for radical birth keepers, doulas, midwives, especially in the area of working outside of the obstetric system or making the decision to move outside of um, these established structures, um, which more and more birth workers are doing. And it's so exciting to see that. It's just a really very, very inspiring movement out there. So I love, I love working with other birth workers too. Um, yeah. And I also do birth debrief sessions for anyone who feels the need to unpack their birth experience or, even to unravel some birth trauma or really to interrogate any aspect of their birth, which I think really can be for some women a very integral first step towards healing or, or even just kind of acknowledging what, what took place um, with a different perspective, perhaps. And I also want to mention, before we begin, the Complete Guide to Free Birth. And this is the online course that I wrote and co-created with the amazing Emily Saldea, again, Emily of the Free Birth Society. And the Complete Guide to Free Birth is really, it's, I would say, the definitive online course on free birth. Um, but it's really applicable to any kind of birth that one might be planning, even a hospital birth, actually. There's so much material within the course that is relevant. All of the material really is relevant to, to any kind of birth choice because it's really rooted in, in the physiology of birth. And I'm so proud of this course and it's been so well received by the now hundreds of women who've registered for it, among whom so many have gone on to have 
ecstatic, powerful births, which we just love hearing about so much. And you can register for that course as well at freebirthsociety.com. And actually, when I think about it, the Complete Guide to Free Birth and Through the Veil are very complementary um, in that the Complete Guide to Free Birth is very much like I said, focused on the physiology of spontaneous birth and offers so much material on just what normal birth looks like, on how to identify complications, how to distinguish between a complication and an emergency, uh, how to deal with variations of normal and all of those, you know, those three, the, the complication, the emergency and the variation of normal, those are very, very important distinctions, um, especially for women who are planning home births or free births. Um, anyway, you know, that's kind of what that course is all about. Whereas Through the Veil, as I said, is really an actual immersion into my home and my life and my experience. And, you know, in a more general sense, what it often looks like for not just me, but, you know, any woman to give birth. Um, because while every birth is completely unique, there's also a very kind of expected and, um, you know, well-trodden trajectory of the experience. Anyway, I'm totally rambling on, but I'm super proud of both of these programs. And you can find them both at freebirthsociety.com, as well as links to booking my coaching sessions. So there we go. That's the spiel. That's out of the way. Now let's talk about my birth because I'm so excited to share it with you today. <laughs> okay, here we go. I found out I was pregnant with my eighth baby in September, closely following a miscarriage. I've had three miscarriages on my mothering journey thus far, and the sorrow I felt at the loss preceding this pregnancy was surprisingly sharp. My husband Lee and I hadn't consciously planned on my becoming pregnant at this time, but we were open to it, and I truly mourned the missing baby, although I'd started bleeding relatively early on, at around ten weeks, and I think the baby had died a week or two before that, because I couldn't find the form of a child among the clots and tissue. After the miscarriage, I felt compelled to become pregnant again as soon as possible, despite the busyness of our lives and the fact that we were in the midst of a very complicated house and business move. I was deep in grief, but it felt like an inevitability that I would conceive again soon. I realize there are some interesting judgments out there about when it's appropriate for women to conceive after a loss, but knowing that these judgments are not grounded in fact, there is no risk in becoming pregnant immediately after a miscarriage, and knowing too that it's adaptive to want to express our aliveness and to make life after loss. Lee and I remained open to a baby. Simply being in solidarity with my husband on the subject, and knowing that he was also saddened by the miscarriage, felt very sweet and comforting. We were very connected during this time, and I felt so lucky to have been supported by him in dealing with the sadness of the loss, as well as the excitement in sharing the anticipation of a new baby. And of course, I did get pregnant just shy of two months after I miscarried, and I knew immediately that it was a little boy. That first trimester was challenging but bearable. I was working full-time outside our home in a corporate job in academic administration, as well as doing a significant amount of coaching and birth consulting work. And to be honest, I felt increasingly overwhelmed as my pregnancy progressed. Not so much logistically, 
although the logistics were and are somewhat complicated, absolutely, as are the logistics for any large family, but more so mentally and emotionally. I found it especially challenging to focus on my nine-to-five position. That work seemed kind of irrelevant in light of the knowledge that my body had once again welcomed new life. And of course, the first trimester especially is a period when most women feel just exhausted as our babies establish themselves and our bodies integrate the expansions and calibrations necessary for sustaining the growth of a new human being. In any case, we moved in October. This was to our beautiful forever home, so it was an exciting time, but this also happened to be the beginning of what proved to be an especially frigid New Brunswick winter. I love our province, but I don't love the cold, and I spent much of the winter feeling kind of down and depleted, almost depressed, which is really uncharacteristic for me. Contributing to this were some very difficult situations that cropped up in the birth world, related to my birth coaching and consulting business specifically, and navigating all of that was really very stressful. That stress, of course, led to some guilt and shame, the sense that I'm maybe not enough for this baby, or that I would be failing him or her, and the rest of our kids too, and just all of that stuff that I think we can all relate to on some level. Intellectually, I recognize that this dynamic is a symptom, really, of our broken culture, and actually probably indicative of my own intrinsic wholeness, but it was still difficult for me at the time, as it is for so many mothers, to merge that intellectual understanding with my unconscious self, and to step outside of the mental constraints that keep us tethered to those damaged belief systems about ourselves and our place in the world. I can also recognize the parallels here to birth. So many of us feel both constrained and failed by the rules and regulations put in place by the industrial birth complex. And yet the possibility of simply stepping aside can seem remote, implausible, and even foreign somehow. Winter was tough. It felt relentless. But it's partly our harsh winters that make spring so welcome, and I took as early a maternity leave as was possible, just as spring was about to break, which at that stage seemed necessary for my mental and physical health. It was especially wonderful to have a chance to connect with my older kids once I took my leave from work, and to really delight in them completely, and in the configuration of our family as it was then, before our new baby joined us. And I really did. I reveled in spending time exploring the woods behind our home and swimming in the lake and getting our house in order with our whole clan. And I really hit the nesting business hard. Um, The more kids Lee and I have, the more I feel called to simplify. It's really a necessity, actually. I can't function in a chaotic physical space at all. I don't really think anyone can. So decluttering and creating routines around cleaning and tidying uh, became really important for me and and definitely magnified as I prepared for birth. Overall, though, I had had such high hopes of being able to truly focus on self-care throughout this pregnancy, but that didn't quite come to fruition. By the time I actually left my day job, I was pretty drained, and it was really a relief to refocus on birth work, including the job of editing my book, Wild Pregnancy Free Birth, which was beginning to take shape as its final version as well as working on Through the Veil, my late pregnancy, birth, and postpartum companion program, which is available now through freebirthsociety.com. 
In a somewhat ironic twist, Through the Veil ended up not so much documenting this idyllic, peaceful, perfect pregnancy that I'd envisioned, but my somewhat anxious, overextended, very messy, very complicated pregnancy. Complicated in my own head, I should say. And in hindsight, I kind of think that's perfect. It really is the ideal pregnancy companion, the program that I ended up creating for any woman who is also experiencing, like I did, the process as challenging and confronting and real and hard. And I'm sure that so much of what I was feeling will be totally relatable to many, if not most, pregnant women. That's not to say that I didn't take time to actively prepare for the birth, mentally and emotionally, spiritually and practically, but looking back, it's clear to me now that I was really quite committed, even if only subtly, to being a victim of the story that I was telling myself about how tough pregnancy is, about how wrong it was that my pregnancies are so long, and how apprehensive I was about the upcoming birth, and that being wrong too somehow. Now, one of the reasons the pregnancy was so hard on my body and my mind, I'm sure, is because I wasn't as active as I normally like to be. By the time I reached my third trimester, I could really feel this lack of core strength literally weighing on me. Overall, though, I am very lucky to have an excellent baseline of health, and I felt less discomfort during this pregnancy than I have had during some of my past pregnancies. And as I've discussed elsewhere, I reject the notion, actually, that pregnancy is inherently debilitating or damaging to our bodies over the long term, or that pregnancy automatically wrecks women's bodies. And I know from experience that postpartum recovery to really optimal vigor is absolutely possible for every woman. The simple truth in my case is that I hadn't taken care of myself, and so the result, of course, is discomfort and pain. It's pretty straightforward, and it's also very, very humbling. From the beginning of this pregnancy, I knew my dates exactly. I practice a sort of lazy fertility awareness method approach, keyword lazy, and especially because I'd miscarried earlier, I was very aware of my cycle. I knew the date that I conceived, and I knew that I would be technically 40 weeks pregnant by June 5th. I also knew from experience, my seven previous full-term pregnancies, that I generally give birth at around 43 weeks gestation. Nonetheless, as that 40-week date drew nearer, I slid once again into the now-familiar third-trimester amnesia, and I started to convince myself that surely this wouldn't be another 10-month baby. It just seemed impossible that, considering how physically enormous and emotionally exhausted I was, that I could remain pregnant past my supposed due date. And for me, and my baseline of normal, I was kind of enormous. Um, As I was poised to discover, I had a fairly large baby, but I was also carrying more body weight in general than I had in my past pregnancies. Now, this wasn't a problem, it wasn't anything dramatic, but it was subtly noticeable to me. And to my closest birthy friends, who also exclaimed over how huge I was. And for the record, I did give them permission, tacit and otherwise, to comment on my body, so no worries there. Um, But I remember kind of amusing ourselves um, one night out, pretending that maybe there was a possibility of my having twins, which was so highly unlikely for so many reasons, not least of which is that I only ever palpated one baby in my uterus. So probably not even a remote 
possibility. I also had a friend who at the time was pregnant with her fifth baby around the same time as I was. And like me, all her previous babies were born past 42 weeks. Now, she was just a couple of weeks ahead of me in her gestation, and it turned out that she gave birth at 39 weeks. So, of course, I took this as a sign that I was also going to be having an early baby, which is categorically nuts. (laughs) But in a way, I did begin my birth process rather early. At around 39 or 40 weeks, I started experiencing all the markers of imminent birth. And this happened every single day. Every day, my pelvis was aching, my back ached. And at some point every day, I felt strong sensations that were so real, that felt so real, that were obviously so real. But they would require me to call Lee and tell him that this was it, the baby was coming, get the dishes done. You know, quickly, it's happening, let's go only to realize an hour or two later that, no, the baby was not, in fact, coming that day at all. And it was at this point that I started to vacillate between stillness and calm and fear and anxiety. It is so hard to truly surrender to what birth really is, which is a process that is entirely focused on surrender. It is a surrendering of control entirely. Now, the funny thing is that I always begin each pregnancy believing that this time I have truly come to terms with the fact that I tend to gestate my babies for quite a long time. And I should be comfortable with this reality at this point, or I felt I should have been comfortable with this. This was during my pregnancy, uh, because of course each of our kids was born between 42 and 44 weeks gestation. And Xanthi, our now three-year-old and second youngest, was actually my longest pregnancy at 43 weeks and four days. But in this instance, I found myself feeling increasingly uneasy, apprehensive, impatient, and even afraid. In fact, I don't think I felt as fragmented at the end of a pregnancy since my very first birth, and that was 18 years earlier. And it wasn't just my stress or anticipation or impatience that was similar. I actually felt like I just didn't know what to expect at all, and as though every aspect of this experience was totally new to me. And of course, it was. This was a new baby, a new time in my life, a new stage in my own evolution as a mother, and we were creating a new family. And this is the case with every birth, but nonetheless, it was raw and it was difficult. I realized, too, in retrospect, that it was difficult for me at this point to establish and maintain the energetic boundaries that would have truly served me during such a permeable and potent time. I had been working with some very powerful leadership tools, and so I was actually more aware of operating below a point of resonance and presence, which in itself was very powerful, but I still felt really stuck. Looking back, there was just so much going on, And this confronting headspace I was occupying definitely had to do with a lack of skill in establishing the container I needed to feel safe. I'd absorbed some secondary trauma from the work I'd been doing as a coach and from some of the stories of loss I'd been exposed to in our wider birth circle. And all of this had reverberations relevant to my own losses prior to the conception of this baby. And and even prior to that, actually. My dad, you know, my dad's passing and stuff with my mom and connection with my oldest sons. 
I'd really made a lot of assumptions and plans for stability in my life around the birth of this child. But rather than working on that sense of stability from the inside out, I'd been concentrating on the logistics, on moving and on tidying and making space and taking care of my kids, all of which are, of course, really important, but I hadn't really accounted for the greater, or equal, at least, importance of processing or even acknowledging some of the baggage that I was really dragging around. And even the deliberately spiritual work that I was doing, my morning rituals of meditation and movement, my spiritual rituals in general, journaling, prayer, these weren't getting to the meat of what I was really going through. And I think, honestly, I was afraid to face it. I didn't really want to confront the fears that I had. My fear of death, residual sadness, not only from my miscarriage, but you know, from deaths that I'd been exposed to, the loss of certain friendships, and just the fear of loss in general. And, of course, my broken response to this was forced bravado and self-deprecation. I actually remember talking to close friends about my pregnancy and impending birth near the end, almost flippantly, um, almost to diminish its importance, because I was actually overwhelmed by its significance, which is really quite sad to me, especially now that I'm holding this gorgeous and deeply, deeply wanted little boy in my arms. And I know now that this was a manifestation of, I think, in part misplaced shame, the twinges of which occasionally come up for me, especially around having so many children, which is such a flashpoint for so many other people. I'm not actually ashamed of my family at all. On the contrary, I'm exceedingly proud of us. But we all have the capacity to succumb to, I think, others' low vibrations and projections and to fall into negativity and self-sabotage, perhaps prompted by the projections of others. It's very interesting the way that our own life choices can be so triggering for other people. And there is definitely something about having a large family and being happy being in a large family that does trigger others, whether by inspiring jealousy or a sense of lack or their own fears or who knows what, but working on separating what's good and true for us from the often pitiful, I think, judgments that other people have is very freeing. And of course, that's a, a lifelong project. But this combination of grief, fear, and vulnerability was quite the crucible as I neared my birth time. And I remember lying in bed at 40 weeks, and then 41 weeks, and then 42 weeks, night after night, with Lee sleeping peacefully beside me. And I would be crying um, and actually hoping and praying that tonight would not be the night. And even thinking up excuses for why giving birth that night, that particular night, really wouldn't be the right time. And of course, my body obliged. Now, obviously, I can't say that my birth process would have occurred any earlier time-wise if I had been actively affirming birth rather than chasing it away, but I'm quite sure that the days leading up to the birth would have had a very different tone and quality. Then again, everything was perfect. I do truly trust that what I went through, or rather what I put myself through, <laughs> was, uh, was what I needed to experience in order to receive the insights that this particular birth offered, which, of course, I'll be wrestling with and uncovering for the rest of my life. And I think the lessons were, were painful, or, or the experience itself was, was painful in many ways, but it was also actually just fine. 
And even in the midst of it, I knew I would be fundamentally okay, despite what increasingly looked and felt like a real breakdown. And of course, birth is a breakdown. It's a breakdown of our conceits and of our vanity and of the layers of embellishments that we build up to protect the concept we have of who we are. And birth always requires that we peel back every layer of ego and all of our preconceived notions and everything we believe, really, and, and it thrusts us into a position of incredible vulnerability and power. So underlying all of my self-imposed drama, I did hold the core belief that everything was happening as it was. Not even as it was supposed to, but just that it was as it was. And that was fine. So as 43 weeks approached, despite knowing that this date was only significant thanks to all of the cultural myths associated with gestational age, I still felt totally and completely raw. I felt naked, and I really was actually naked all the time. I couldn't stand clothes on my body at all at that stage, which I think reflected my state of mind, this urge to strip myself down to my essence, to really rewild myself. Knowing, of course, that abandon is important, but maybe almost feeling as though I didn't know how to fully surrender, and that somehow being physically naked might expedite that process. Now, late June in New Brunswick is usually gorgeous with warm nights and scorching, lazy days. Anyway, so nudity felt actually quite sensible. And during those last few days of my pregnancy, I basically just wandered around naked the entire time. Uh, except for these ridiculous green knee pads that I wore as well, because I was cleaning and gardening constantly, obsessively, in between thinking that my baby was coming right then and there. So it was probably a little bit weird, but everything is so intensely concentrated at the end of pregnancy, and, and time almost folds in on itself. And there's really a sense, for me anyway, of, of just hovering, kind of holding on and then letting go and pulling back again and sort of floating in space. And I have a really hard time with stillness. I really do. But so often it's really just accepting stillness that provides the clearing required for momentum to develop. And I think that was sort of happening to me in those last few days. And interestingly, I was actually less impatient with my older kids at this point than I have been during past pregnancies at this end stage. And I really cherished their company and their presence for, for the most part. And while I was wandering around enormously pregnant and kind of hysterical and experiencing these intermittent strong sensations, thinking, this is it, and then having to wait and basically freaking out about it all, there was Lee just steadfast and lovely and sweet and uh, unlike me, completely calm and totally confident that everything was fine, would be fine, or that it was at least unfolding as it should. And then I really did break down. At 43 weeks exactly, I actually received some news about another friend who was herself having a hard time, and this triggered just a massive emotional outburst that evening and I sobbed and cried and I just felt so fragile and for some reason so heartbroken and just I think wistful you know time just 
had crept up on me and I was feeling overwhelmed with how 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 meaningful I had I had made everything be in that moment <laughs> and I was afraid I was afraid of crossing the threshold into the underworld the the underworld of existence and and afraid to move through that ritual mystery dance with creation that is birth again so that evening Lee and the kids really rallied and they, they put me to bed, and they were so sweet. And I remember again lying there, actually hoping that I would not give birth that night. And there was something about the darkness that I just couldn't handle. And I was even fearful of the possibility of full-blown birth hitting me at any point before daybreak. Several of my older kids were born in the middle of the night, and it had never occurred to me previously that this would ever be a problem. In fact, I've always expected birth to happen at night. But the thought of giving birth in the middle of the night in this case was just completely unbearable. Now, whether it was willpower or fate or chance, I didn't give birth that night. And I woke up the next morning actually feeling like I had come to terms with the obvious fact that this baby just wasn't ever going to come out. It was a warm day that morning, that day, but it was also gray and kind of overcast. It seemed like it was trying to rain. And strangely, I felt really resigned and relatively calm for the first time in probably months, honestly. Um, and I basically realized that I just had to get on with my life. I'd been putting off finishing a bunch of work in the pottery studio. I'm a visual artist in addition to the work that I do in birth and as a writer. And so at around 11 in the morning, I started to just get ready to go to work. I'd been so physically uncomfortable for so many weeks, but I felt at this point as though I'd broken through a mental block or that I'd even dissociated, I, I guess, a little bit from my discomfort. And as I got dressed in my clay clothes, again, for the first time in ages, a very deep calm settled over me. And it was in that instant of momentary peace that I felt a tightening and a deep pulling sensation in my womb that had a different quality and a different weight than everything else I'd been feeling for so many weeks. And I knew then, without any doubt, that my baby would come that day. Well, I shouldn't necessarily say without any doubt. I did know deep down that my baby would come that day. But then, of course, throughout the subsequent hours, doubts crept in again. But in that moment, I knew that that would be the day. And embarrassingly, I actually felt a little bit annoyed. You know, just when I'd geared up to go and actually get something done, just when I'd given up and resolved just to move on with things, there we go. This is when it happens. And I did start to question myself, actually, when I, when I recall. It was really, you know, I had this moment of awareness. This was, this was my baby making its, its, um, its arrival known, its impending arrival known. Then I started to really question myself. Is this really it? What if it's another false alarm? As though there are actually any false alarms. Uh, and I did know on a full-body, cellular level that this was it and that my baby was on his way just as I knew all along. <laughs> but my tendency to overthink and to second-guess myself is so reflexive that I spent the next hour pacing and kind of narrating my own confusion. Is this okay? Is everything going to be okay? No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm not having the baby. 
this is nothing, I should just go to the studio, and then another sensation would hit, and I would scream and pant and chant, okay, 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 this is it, it's happening, and it was just, uh, it was <laughs> completely ridiculous and, and chaotic, really, um, and a chaos of, again, my own making entirely. Just so much resistance, and I'm not entirely sure why. I think this is just uh, part of my uh, my dominant persona, <laughs> I should say. And then I started to bleed a little bit, just a little during each sensation, especially when I sat on the toilet. And there's something about seeing blood, the bloody show, that is so visually affirming. And uh, I think it really sunk in at that point that my baby was truly coming. And soon I couldn't bear walking around anymore, and I couldn't stay upright. And as with all of my babies, I gravitated towards my bed, my nest. I needed to be on my hands and knees to relieve the pressure of each sensation. And there was so much weight on my bladder that I needed to pee continuously. I was still quite discombobulated, but also quite a bit in my head, and I was also starting to realize that I was going to be able to actually meet my child soon, to hold him and to see his face, and I remember at that point feeling excitement and just such an incomparable yearning, really. And then my friends arrived. I'd asked two close friends to support me, mostly just to help with our older kids, but also because it had struck me leading up to the birth that I wanted women around me. I wanted my women around me. So Ellie and Danielle came in, and suddenly it felt like a party. And then another dear friend, Chantal, arrived, uh, Chantal Richard Mercier. She's an incredibly talented photographer, and she was there to document the birth. And I knew that Lily, another of my dearest friends, was on her way. And the kids were running in and out, and we were organizing towels and supplies, and the kids were getting up onto the bed to stroke my hair and to chat with me and to, you know, offer me support when I needed it or when they thought I needed it. And Cosmo, our five-year-old in particular, just kept being hilarious and asking me if the baby was coming. And he just showed such excited tenderness. And, you know, I since I had told them all that this is it so many times before for over a month prior... Cosmo and all the kids, um, they were all quite skeptical as to whether or not their new sibling was actually on his way. But it did become increasingly apparent by the minute, even to them, that this was so, and at one point, feeling so deeply the imminence of this transformation that was taking place, right now, right here, finally, in my body, and in my family, I started to cry, and right away, the kids were right next to me and showering me with their adoration and their care. And I just felt so grateful to have this amazing family and this incredible circle of support and these wonderful friends and my husband there. And it was just, I, I, I was so, so grateful. And I've, I've often made such a fuss in the past about how independent I am and how much I want my space during birth and that I'm not really a touchy-feely birther. And, you know, I think Lee expected to give me a wide birth, no pun intended, haha, except that as the intensity of the sensations ramped up, I found that I really needed him more and more. 
But I was also sort of jumping around on the bed at this point and squatting and then resting and lying down between the sensations and kind of moving in and out between these two worlds. So my family and lucidity on one side and then really the underworld of birth on the other. That that word keeps coming up for me, underworld. I don't know, it really felt like there was there was a darkness to, to some aspects of this birth. And Treva in particular was by my side almost constantly again playing with my hair and offering me encouraging words singing irritating me and and also mostly being delightful and just totally full of love throughout Horace on the other hand pretended not to want to have anything to do with any of it but he couldn't resist poking his head into the room from time to time and just checking up on things I think Felix was in and out quite reserved as he always is but interested and always helpful if I needed anything specific. Xanthi snuggled me a lot, and she showed nurturing and, and love and an attentiveness, I think really beyond her almost three years. She's a very, very caring person, which is wonderful. And the feeling of pressure and the sharp, almost stabbing ferocity of the sensations increased at this point, and I kept having to pee, but I constantly felt like I couldn't properly empty my bladder, which I know can be a problem when the baby starts to emerge and also in regards to bleeding after birth. So I kept deliberately peeing after each sensation. And at first I was peeing on the towel that I was kneeling on that was over top of a, a waterproof pad. Um, but then I just continually asked Lee and Danielle and Ellie to pass me a cup, and I kept peeing into this cup, so I didn't keep peeing all over the bed and all over myself and messing up the towels. Um, and uh, I remember at that point just kind of giggling and feeling a little bit heady and almost drunk at the silliness of it all. And, uh, and still, things were relatively fun and light, and I was able to lie down and rest between the sensations still and joke with the kids and... I think we were all having a pretty good time. It was it was pretty fun. And then another wave would crest, and I would rear up on my haunches, kneeling, rocking, moaning, breathing through it, rolling my hips, and then lying back down to gather my resources. Within about an hour, though, the sensations intensified, and I started to wonder when the baby was going to come. My previous three babies had been born within just an hour or two, um, two at the most. I think the past four babies had been born within two hours. And at this point, I was really feeling time. I was focused on time, and it just felt too long. It was too much. And I think it was actually this awareness, this sense of duration that contributed to the relatively extended birth, a sort of tension or just a feeling of, of lack of release. But there it was, and I was in it. And I kept putting my hands inside my vagina, hoping to feel ahead, but my baby was still high in my body. And in my own head, I knew that for grand multipara, that is, women who've had many babies, it's very common and normal for a baby to stay quite high and only to descend at the time of pushing. And I could feel the baby's amniotic sac, which felt like a, like a balloon high in my vagina, and that seemed like hope, but I still felt anxiety at the realization or, or the, the interpretation that my baby had what seemed to me to be so far to travel still. 
And now the sensations were becoming frightening, and I was screaming. It was agonizing. Several times Danielle reminded me to try to keep my voice low, and to use my power to send energy down and through and out, but I couldn't stop myself from shrieking. The feeling of, of anguish really shocked me, honestly, and I felt like I was dying to the point that I was clawing at Lee and begging him to help me, which he did, simply by being there next to me, not speaking, not offering advice, just giving me his body to, <laughs> I think, really maul and gnaw on. At one point, I was crawling up his back and chewing on his shoulder and basically trying to eat his arm. I was wild and undone. And then there was a shift, and I was pushing. But unlike my last several births, which had ended in just a couple of pushing sensations and then the full fetal ejection reflex resulting in the release of my baby, this child was not slipping out like his siblings, but seemed really lodged in my body, and frankly, he felt stuck. And I felt stuck, and I felt desperate and afraid. I can't help but wonder if maybe there was something a little bit funny going on. But again, that only confirms that there are so many acceptable, normal, viable, I should say, variations of normal within birth, and that if it was in fact some kind of contraction ring, then, you know, the birth was tough, but, uh, but we did very well. Uh, so anyway, then my water broke, and the dark, meconium-stained sludge that it was splashed out onto the towel that I was squatting over, and there was another perceptible shift, and I wasn't particularly worried about the meconium in and of itself, but I knew the baby had to come soon, and I felt a new resolve and an injection of energy, which so many women can relate to. I think once we finally start to push, or once our water's released, there's often a physical release of pressure, but also a mental release and a sense of, of hope again. Um, and this was very good because I was starting to feel quite physically exhausted. I hadn't eaten anything that day, and I could tell that my muscles were really drained. I, I was depleted, um, and I knew that this could be a problem for when it actually came to, to, to actually release my baby or to push my baby out. So at this point, I asked Danielle or Ellie or, or someone just to give me a spoonful of honey in hopes that the calories might give me some additional force because this birth was requiring just such an incredible effort. And psychologically and emotionally, I felt like I was crumbling. I needed it to be over. The honey was disgusting to me, but I managed to lick the spoon a little, which gave me a tiny surge, if only symbolic. And then I threw up. As the pushing continued to ramp up and sensation after sensation crashed and then burned in my body, I felt more and more discouraged. I tried to lift myself back up into a cat position on my hands and knees, which is how I usually give birth, but I couldn't. I just, I could not move. It was really agony. All I could do was lie on my back in submission, really, to the vehemence of these sensations. This isn't how it was supposed to be. This isn't how I give birth. What is going on? 
These are thoughts that were running through my head. I felt so lost and so afraid. I felt like a new mother, like this was my first birth, and I actually felt transported back to my very first birth and that sense of innocence and desperation and just extreme vulnerability. I swore, and I should say now that I swear way too much in my day-to-day life and my kids are always telling me not to say bad words to my great shame, but I'd never, I don't think I've ever used the F word in a birth before, but there I was. F, I can't do this. F, I can't do this. F, I can't do this. Just screaming, screaming. And then as I've trained myself to do when those dark, fearful, negative thoughts descend, I corrected them in my head and I corrected them out loud as well. And I replaced them with, yes, I can. Yes, I can. Uh, Yes, I'm doing this. Yes, this is okay. This is fine. This is fine. This is fine. And actually, this is fine ended up being one of my central mantras, which I think is quite funny because I was just at the point where I didn't even need it to be good. You know, I just needed it to be fine. I just needed to survive. And I prayed to God for help, for deliverance. And despite the fact that Lee had no intention of going anywhere, I found myself begging him to stay with me, to just be with me forever and ever. Then I was screaming again. I shuddered, and I wailed, and I clung to Lee in a frenzy, and I was unable to bear the acute, piercing sharpness of the sensation, so I just kept screaming and screaming, relinquishing and relinquishing. I felt completely broken and in submission to this oceanic transformation. Soon, the sensations were so otherworldly that I dissociated from my body. I couldn't place myself. I was aware, but only academically. It was too much to feel, too much to bear, but I knew I had no choice but to be in it. There was no moving through. There was no through. There was no time. It was just survival or dying, whichever it was. I couldn't tell the difference, and I didn't care. I just wasn't there anymore. I was a scream. I was a sound, a shadow. I felt like an absence. I existed only as a roaring in my own mind. I had no real perception, no sense of space or time. And then suddenly there was a tear in my meditative state and a different movement and a weird, almost rubbery sensation in my pelvis and my body was opening. I put my hands between my legs, and I could feel my baby's head, but again, it seemed stuck, and so I lifted my body up, elevating myself from my abdomen almost, like a puppet, my legs akimbo, hands between my legs trying to pull my labia apart to make room for the softness and the hugeness of my child. Then his head emerged, and I finally breathed, I had to remind myself to breathe, hovering between these two worlds, shepherding my baby, my hands on his head, waiting, resting, yearning for him, waiting for him, desperate for him, and then another wave, and I screamed and trembled, and he still wouldn't come, so I lifted my legs and asked Lee to push on my thigh, offering some resistance. I had nothing to hold on to, and then there was another shift and my child's shoulders slipped out of my body, and his belly, but his legs were still inside me, and I could feel this sort of scratching feeling, this sort of clawing, 
And then I was clawing at my own vagina. <laughs> and then he finally emerged entirely. And I collapsed into darkness. And I woke up just a few seconds later to Lee's quiet but insistent voice cutting through the fog saying, Yo, get your baby. Yo, get your baby. Now, Lee is preternaturally calm almost always, and when there is a real crisis or a real cause for concern, that calm is somehow magnified. And I really sensed his composed tension, this almost hysterical serenity, and this jogged my repose. And I sat up, and then I realized that I'd given birth, and there was my baby, gray, white, and asleep. Or dead? Strangely, I felt completely tranquil. All the fear that I'd been carrying through those last weeks, and the excruciating birth, was gone, and I was imbued with absolute clarity, and a profound openness and curiosity. And I'm, I'm, I think, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm very open and curious generally, but serene, almost never. Uh, and it was so amazing to me even in that moment and and I remember kind of almost having that thought as I was experiencing it that this was such a curious feeling to to feel so serene and I said wake up baby very evenly before I could tell whether the baby was alive or dead whether the baby would wake up or not I simply gathered my child up in my arms and held him against my heart and then I heard him cry, and then I cried. And recalling that is so moving to me because it didn't matter almost. I, I, don't, I don't mean that it didn't matter whether he was dead or alive. What I mean is that the love I felt for him was the same, would have been the same either way. And that, to me, is just the most gorgeous revelation, really. Not so much about myself personally, just about what it is to be a mother. Because I think it's the same for all of us. Now, several people have asked me why I didn't immediately give him a breath. And the answer is simply that I didn't think I needed to. I... It just didn't seem appropriate <laughs> somehow. It didn't seem necessary. And I think, in fact, all of that was just the expression of complete intuitive connection. And when I spoke with Danielle, Chantal, and Ellie later, they all said that they thought my baby was dead and Lee had been similarly concerned. I was so deeply grateful when I heard this because I really understood then what they had done for me, all of these, these friends, these friends and family members, that they had all held back, that it had taken so much for all of them to resist touching my baby, and that their studious lack of action was a testament to how much they all deferred to my authority and my intuition. And when I asked Lee about his assessment, you know, about his, his fear for, for our baby's life, he simply said that, yes, he was very worried about the baby's state, but that I had always made it clear that I would be the first 
and the only person to touch my newborn, and I wanted to be the person whose voice my child heard for the first time, and simply that Lee respected that completely. And maybe more poignantly even, I recognized that had I invited the wrong people into my birth space, or, God forbid, had I been in the hospital, the arrival of this baby would have been highly intervened upon and made so much more dangerous because of that, I think. And, you know, in my experience during situations like this, when the baby is born non-responsive with poor color and no tone, the cord is often cut immediately, severing baby's oxygen supply, and then the infant is taken away from its mother and deep suctioned, which can cause a a vagal response leading to a crash in baby's heart rate and the need for additional resuscitation efforts, which of course is a perfect example of routine industrial obstetric procedures being the cause of a problem which wouldn't necessarily exist otherwise, but which in its creation, the professionals can then hero by supposedly solving thanks to their gizmos and gadgets. And so inevitably the story the mother is presented with is that Lo and behold, the doctors and nurses, la, saved her baby's life, right? So in my case, this baby boy that I knew I had been carrying was just here, and he was so beautiful, and he'd taken the time that he needed to wake up. And actually, I recorded a a podcast interview with, with Emily Saldea of the Free Birth Society, and she uh, she was asking me about, it was, it was about my birth experience, it was my telling of, of, of this birth story, and Emily offered me this amazing interpretation, which is that we, we did descend or ascend or leave the physical realm, he and I, and Maybe we were traveling in parallel. Maybe this was a visitation of some kind. Maybe this was a little short dance with death. I'm not sure, but but I loved her offering that that idea. And it hadn't really crossed my mind before, but but I like it and I think I think there's there's some interesting stuff to uh, stuff to explore there, which uh, which I will again, over the years, over my remaining years, I'm sure. In any case, I was in shock. And at that point, after my baby had woken up and cried and you know, given his, his little song of, of aliveness, I fully burst into tears and I turned to Lee and I begged him to never, ever leave me. And that reaction I'm also still contemplating now. I was so incredibly tender and so in love with this baby and with my beloved husband who made him with me and just so so grateful and I started to shake and the tightening sensations in my uterus returned and it was a wild oscillation between feeling totally whole and at peace and adoring this baby and then suddenly feeling like I was dying all over again and trembling and shaking and weeping, and at the mercy of the most painful uterine contractions, in many ways so much more painful than the birth itself. And of course, this is normal and very common, and so many women that I know who've had many babies describe the afterpains as being far more severe than the birth sensations. And really, I was in, in shock, in total, complete shock. After some nosing around and snuffling, my new baby started to nurse. 
and that first initial tug on my nipple, even though there was no milk yet, just colostrum, was a divine relief. It felt like I'd been waiting for so long to nourish this baby, which, of course, I had. And his latch was so strong, and this in and of itself made me cry, because I'd had such a heartbreaking time trying to nurse Xanthi, our second youngest, who at this point was almost three. And in this moment, Xanthi was sitting next to me with her arms around me as her little brother breastfed for the first time. And I recall registering that as such a beautiful resolution or or the beginnings of it and a really powerful form of healing for for Xanthi and and me and the pain that we'd gone through trying to have a breastfeeding relationship, which we really weren't able to have. And if anyone listening has gone through that a, a similar kind of problem, uh, issues with tongue tie or just any kind of nursing issue, when you desire to be able to feed your baby in that way and, and not being able to, is it really is heartbreaking. It's a, such a such a terrible thing. So... Uh, So it was wonderful to uh, have the sense in that moment just after birth that we were maybe going to be able to follow a different path this time. And someone brought me food at this point, and I ate a little bit, but the cramping was getting worse, and I knew it was time to release my baby's placenta. Lee had brought a bowl up, one that he had made himself in, in our pottery studio. And I was really too weak at this point to haul myself up and to get up and kneel over the bowl. So I kind of positioned it between my legs and I reached it down to my yoni and I gave the cord some gentle traction and the placenta emerged, but I missed the bowl and the placenta landed on the bed. So I just scooped it up and popped it in the bowl. My hands were kind of bloody, but it was fine. And then I was really able to kind of feel whole and really to focus on this beautiful little boy. And I always, with all of my births, there's always a point where I start to feel a little bit panicky again. So there's that sort of peak, uh, immediate postpartum time. And then my placenta, I usually start to have this sort of panicky sensation about half an hour later. And that's a very clear sign to me that I need to release my placenta. And it's interesting, again, to look at the physiology of birth because uh, it's actually the release of the placenta that offers another peak emission of of oxytocin in the body, and that's what actually uh, helps to precipitate the release of the placenta. So that very much corresponds with my recollection of the kind of physiological but also emotional happenings in in my body and in my perspective right after I give birth. And the kids at this time were so curious about this baby's cord and his placenta and his now very concentrated efforts to nurse and just his whole incredible presence in our family. But after a few minutes, the kids started to get antsy and that whole body extreme exhaustion really settled over me and I just needed to sleep. So Lee passed me the cord burning box. Um, We have these beautiful cord burning boxes that we had made and uh, it's just lovely to, uh, 
to have this sort of physical object that was created for the purpose of this little ceremony. And, uh, and we got out the beeswax candles that we made ourselves and our kids gathered around kind of jostling for position. And I just gave a simple thanks to the beautiful placenta and my body and God and goddess and the great spirit for giving us this gorgeous baby. And we lit the candles and we welcomed our gentle, fiery boy, Ignatius Shepherd, to our family and to the world. <laughs> and if anything, Ignatius's birth only reinforced my profound trust in the process of life and in our babies and our bodies' resilience and birthing genius, really. And ever since, Iggy has been just a little star, just a, such a bright, sweet little being that we all completely adore. And as of this recording, Iggy is now almost four months and just the most adorable, delightful little guy. And we really can't imagine life without him. So there we go. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And, uh, and I hope to imagine chatting with you again soon. Thank <laughs> you.